Stand with me, we'll be reading the scripture verse. The scripture verse in, is in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Um, if you do not have a Bible, please follow along on screen. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. God, please give us ears to hear this morning what it is that you want us to learn from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, as you see, Kyle's not here today, uh, along with a few of our, few of our other people. And it's because Kyle's um, brother-in-law is being installed as the senior pastor at Tremont Baptist Church up in um, Boston. And so Kyle and a, and a lot of our members are there for that ceremony. Um, and actually, Jamie and, um, Jamie and Debbie Owens if you know them, that's his son, that's their son who's being installed up there. So that's a really great thing for them and for their family and for the kingdom of God to have a, a Bible teaching uh, pastor installed up there. So that's where they are all today. Next week, Kyle should be back and should be back to normal, whatever normal is. <laughs> uh, next week is also our church picnic, our potluck picnic, uh, monthly um, event that we do so please come planning to stay to have a nice picnic bring some food and uh, hopefully the weather will be nice and we can be outside again and that will be our july potluck slash business meeting i think that's all my business announcements so this morning i am just going to continue along in the philippians server uh, series that we started a few weeks ago and we're just going to look at the next text, and, which is Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And what we have here is that this is one of the prayers of Paul. This is a prayer of Paul. He's, he starts right out by saying, um, I pray this. We already saw in verse 4 that he prays for the church in Philippi. He says, I always pray with joy in my heart, ever prayerful for all of you. So right at the beginning of the letter, he told them that he prays for them. So Paul's a mighty prayer warrior, and there's a lot of books written about, about the prayers of Paul. And if you want, uh, an interesting study would be to just study the different prayers of Paul. And they're, they're really amazing, and they're very encouraging. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, because our text, verses 9 to 11, is his prayer. And we're going to see specifically what it is he prayed for. And the interesting thing about it is what he prayed for the Philippians is exactly the same thing that he would pray for us if he was here today. Or it is exactly what we can pray for ourselves. So remember, the, this book was written to a church. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, it was written to a group of believers. We're, we're just 2,000 years later. We're still a church. We're still a group of believers and so the things that Paul wanted for that group of believers is what he would want for us, our group of believers. 
And so as we go through it, just kind of keep in mind that this is, this is all for us, too. This wasn't just them. It's, it's us. Um, I found four topics in, that we'll be looking at. So love, discernment, the day of Christ, and the Christian life. These are the four topics that you will be able to see in um, this packet, the passage. All right. So we're going to look at each one of these individually. And this first one beginning with love. All right, love. Love is one of the most popular topics in all of literature. It's a universal topic. It's something I like to call an echo of Eden. I introduced this phrase a few times ago when I have priests. But an echo of Eden is something that everyone knows is true. It's a universal reality, things that we kind of hold to and the whole world holds to. And it's because it's ingrained into us as humans that there's something there. And love is one of those things. Everybody wants to be loved. All the songs, all the great songs are written about love. You know, so it's a, it's a universal theme. It's an echo of Eden. And so it's just very, it's very popular. Everyone knows about it. However, what the world calls love and what the Bible calls love are two very different um, things. And sometimes we can get mixed up thinking we're loving someone or thinking someone says they love us, but yet they're operating on a completely different level. So we're going to kind of examine what is biblical love. What is Paul talking about? Um, now, one of the problems is that our English language is limited. We only have one word, love, to express so many different expressions or emotions. I say, I love my wife. And when we say that, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Everyone knows what I mean. But I also say, sometimes I don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love my chocolate cake. I say that as well. Sometimes I say that more than... Uh, <laughs> so the point that I want you to see is like both, thing, both sentences are communicating two very different emotions, emotions that everyone agrees to and, know, and knows what they are, but the word love is used in both those sentences. And so we don't have a word that would, that would to, distinguish this, what, to distinguish between these two. In the Greek language, they do. The Greek language is very precise. So they have words that we translate love, but they use differently. And so that's what I want to show you. Because, again, that's one of the problems and why there's this miscommunication between, between what love is and what biblical love is. You know, the, the world is calling for love, but they don't know what they're calling for. They don't know what biblical love is because we have these limitations. Um, both these statements are true, and they communicate, but they communicate very different ideas. And that's just the English language. I hate, you know, it can be so confusing. <laughs> and then we say, well, let's look at the Greek, and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't follow in English. <laughs> but the Greek is very different. 
Um, but the Greek is very, it's a very precise language. This is why God chose the Greek language to be used, so he could communicate exactly what he wanted to communicate, because the, their language is just much more precise. Um, and it has different words for love. Now, let's see. I'm not sure what the next. All right. So before I read it, let me just read this. There are at least four different Greek words that we translate as English word love. The variety actually helps us in the work of, of translation because each has very different nuances. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to put them up. I'm going to, what's going to go on the board is going to be the Greek word and like a really short definition. I'm going to be reading a little bit of a longer definition. But if you take notes, I would just write what's on the board. So the first one is eros. Now, eros is sexual love. It's actually not used in the New Testament, but it's from the same era of the New Testament. This Greek word was not used in the New Testament. It refers to sexual love and probably derived its name from the, myth the mythical god of love. Then we have storge. Storge is like family love. Uh, this is the type of love signifying the natural affection between kinfolk. This word appears occasionally in the New Testament and often as a compound form. And then we have phileo, which is friendship love. Uh, this Greek word for love signifies spontaneous natural affection with more feeling than reason. Strong's Concordance defines it as to be a friend to be fond of an individual or an object, having affection for as um, denoting attachment. So it's a matter of sentiment or feeling. And then the last one is agape, and this is unconditional love. This Greek word for love is by far the one that appears most often in the New Testament. It is generally assumed to mean morally good, which proceeds from Eastern principle or duty rather than attraction or charm. It means to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Through agape, has, though agape has more to do with moral principle than with inclination or liking. It never means the cold religious kindness shown from duty alone, as scripture examples abundantly provide. So basically, on agape, Agape love is the unconditional love, the loving, it's, it's a benevolent love, a love that you do for the better of the other person. We can kind of sum these three up with some modern vernacular, the difference. Eros love is basically me, me, me. All right, so when you're just thinking about yourself and it's just self-centered, that's Eros love. And then Phileo love gets a little better. It's you, but only if it benefits me. See, you still get the me in there. You know, I'll help you, but what's in it for me? If there's no me in it, then, then I'm not helping you. But the agape love is all about others. It's others, others, others. And this is the love of the New Testament. And this is the love that Paul is praying for in, in this letter. When he says, I pray that your love abounds. Agape is the word that he uses. And almost always when we see love 
Oh, I don't want to say always, but many times in the New Testament, love is, it is usually agape love, especially if, it's, if the contact is with God or Jesus and stuff. So love, um, so I want to look at this a little bit. What is love? Because this is what he wants us to grow in. So agape love is more than a sentimental feeling. It's an action. See, this, one of our problems in, in our culture is that we expect that love is a feeling. And love is a feeling. That's a part of it. But agape love is an action behind it. So if there's no action in your love, then you don't have biblical love. You don't have agape love. You have something else. So I don't know what maybe we'll call it worldly love. But you should have the feelings, but the actions should follow. And if the actions don't follow, then you don't have agape love. Um, in love in the Bible is not a noun. It's a verb. Agape love is an action word. You know, we can say to people, I love you, and you know, do all these things, but if we never do anything for them, is that really love? It's just empty promises. Um, so agape love is something that we do. It's not just felt. So it's an action. And Paul actually describes what the action of agape love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. This is you know, known as the great love passage. But these are all action words that we take. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so this is what love is. And when you read the word love in the New Testament, when Jesus says, love one another, or, or you know, where it says, oh, God is love, or when he says, love your enemies, this is what it meant, is, is what they're telling us to do. These things is what love is. And this is love in action. And Paul says about this love that it may abound more and more and more, that it just keeps going. It's the picture of a cup being filled with water that overflows. And it just keeps coming and it keeps overflowing. And we can never love too much. It's, we should always take the next step. And so this is what Paul is praying about and what he's asking us to do. That we love ever more and more and we take the action. He does, however, qualify how we should love. Because he says that love should be with knowledge and every kind of insight. And this, make, this is what makes agape love, the application of it, different than worldly love. And so we're going to look at these terms now to see what is it that he wants us to do. 
Now, the Greek word for knowledge is epinosis. And it means, basically, to know by experience. So it's, we can learn things and know things by studying and reading books, and that's good, but epinosis is that you know by experience. Like, before I ever preached, I read books about preaching, and I knew how to preach by reading and by learning. But until I actually got up and preached, I didn't have epinosis of preaching until I actually did it. And so Paul is saying that our love has to come from experience. The experience, going out and helping people, being patient to people, being kind to people. And so it's, it's, it's part of our life experience. Um, so it goes beyond just book learning and it includes experience. Um, now, insight, it says, so it also includes insight. And then I can't, you can try to pronounce that Greek word. Interesting thing about this Greek word, you probably never heard it before because it's the only time it's used in the, in the New Testament is in this verse right here. So we have nothing to compare it to and how to, like what it means and stuff. But it means um, perception, but not only by the senses, but by experience. Uh, I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry. It means perception, but not only by the senses, but by the intellect. So this is insight, taking everything in, and just take, being aware of your surroundings and perceiving things, and, but also thinking about all those things and what's happening and putting it all together. It, it is similar to epinosis. So what happens, though, when we add these two words together, we're getting the idea of discernment, that, that we need to communicate our love expressed in action, but we need to be discerning about it. Um, it needs to be, our love needs to be based on reality, not on feelings. One communicator, commentator wrote this. Love is to rest on real knowledge and all discernment. It should arise from an intellectual appraisal of reality. It also and should also rest on spiritual sensitivity to truth as God has revealed it in his word, in, in his word, and not mere sentimentality. And so what we're saying here is that real love is actions that are based on our experience and our knowledge of the word of God. And that's how we express real love. And the problem with the world today is they want to express love and they're even trying to express actions of love, but they're missing the knowledge and the insight. Recently, um, I didn't put this in my PowerPoint, I had the sidebar. Every time we have terrorist attacks and stuff, lots of but people come out saying what, we should do this or that. And the latest one in England in the Manchester attack, you may remember this news story, Katy Perry was on the news and Katy Perry says, hey, you know, we all need to just love one another. We need to just love on each other and have no barriers and no borders and, and no lines, just love one another. Now that sounds great, because you know what, we want to love one another. The problem with Katy Perry's expression of love is it doesn't have 
the knowledge and the insight that Paul is calling us to have. Because of the knowledge of the insight of previous experiences in dealing with these people that are coming to harm us, means that we should have borders, so we should protect ourselves. Love doesn't mean, hey, let everyone just come here and steal all my stuff and kill me. Love is, hey, I have a process for you to come. Hey, let's work together. Let's do this with knowledge and insight. But it's not just a free-for-all. And that's what Katy Perry is missing. She's missing the knowledge and the insight that goes along in how do you apply love. And applying love is different in every situation. How we love each other is going to be different. You know, love is all those things that Paul listed, love, patience, kindness, and these different things. And we need those different things in different situations. And, it's, and the situation will change every time. But without the knowledge and the insight, we're not going to know how best to express the agape love that God's calling us to. And that leads us to the second thing that Paul is praying for in this passage, and that's discernment. Because without discernment, you're never going to know how the best way to, to express agape love. And again, that's what the world doesn't have. Even when the world has a biblical idea, they don't have discernment on how to use it. So, so let's move on to discernment. So discernment, discernment is, it just means the ability to judge well. The Greek word is dokimos. And it means to recognize as genuine after an examination, to approve or deem worthy. So again, the idea of discernment is that you check something out and you can just determine that this is a good thing or that it's not a bad thing. So discernment begins with the idea or the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. Like, so, the, so the very basic discernment that everybody should have is telling the difference between right and wrong. Now, unfortunately, we don't even have that anymore in our culture. Like, right and wrong is up for grabs. And what, you know, what some people say is right, some people say is wrong. And, and so we actually need discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. Um, but really, discernment really should go beyond that. And that's what Paul wants us to, what he is telling us, what he's praying for. Paul isn't praying, hey, I hope you know the difference between right and wrong. Because Paul assumes you know the difference between right and wrong. You're a mature believer in a church. You should know the difference between right and wrong. Um, but there are other things we need discernment for. So the idea is that Paul prays that we would know what is best. He says, I pray that you have every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best. See here, he doesn't say, so you can know the difference between right and wrong. He's already assuming that you know that. He's praying about, you can decide what is best. Because there are so many things in life that are good things. And so many opportunities and choices that we are going to face, that both choices are good. But which one is the best one? And that's what Paul is praying for. One commentator explains, Possessing this kind of abounding love would enable the Philippians to give approval to the things of the greatest value and importance. Conversely, they would disapprove things of lesser significance. Most of the choices that a spiritual believer faces are not between morality, between morally good and morally evil things, 
but between things of lesser and greater value. Every day we have hundreds of choices, and, the, and they're all good choices. You know, I like the choices when it's easy, black and white. Oh, should I go to that strip club or should I go home? You know, that's a pretty easy choice. <laughs> I'm going home. You know, but it's like, uh, should I eat that chocolate cake or should I have that nice, delicious Nutribar or whatever? <laughs> you know? um, not so easy of a choice. And there's a choice, you know, that doesn't matter. Or, or, and, you know, when we go to church, is what church has God called me to? God's, there's a lot of good churches in our area. And we're here at Refuge Church, and we believe God has called us here. But maybe God has called other people to other churches. And that's okay. And that's where they have to decide. And it's not wrong for them to decide, oh, I'm not called to Refuge Church. I'm called to this church. And God is going to do that between the person. It's an individual response. And this is what discernment is all about. And so, um, so we're faced with all these choices. And Paul is praying we have the ability to choose the best one. And the amazing thing about God and his grace, you choose A, thinking that's the best choice, and say something happens, and six months down the road, you're like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I don't think that was the best choice. You can go back and choose B, you know, because God, that's how God works, you know? And in Deuteronomy, it says God will turn a, a curse into a blessing if you go through it with the obedience. So obedience is the key, and God is always in it. All right, so that's discernment. Now, the third thing that Paul is praying for is the day of Christ. Wait, oh, how are we doing this? Oh, no. If we have discernment, then we are going to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. So this is kind of transitional. But I want to look at you know, we can measure ourselves. How do we know we're being good at our discernment? Are we sincere and blameless? So what I want to do is let's look at these terms, sincere and blameless. These are for the day of Christ now. And what it, how is it that we are going to be sincere and blameless? And to be honest with you, those words scare me. <laughs> Especially the blameless one. It's impossible to be blameless, but we'll talk about more of what Paul is saying and sincere. But first, we're going to talk about, start with sincere. Now, sincere is an interesting word. Um, I was, in my studies, I found J. Vernon McGee's comments on this were really interesting. And he says that um, sincere, it comes from the Latin word, um, well, I didn't put the Latin word up there. But anyway, sincere comes from a Latin word that sounds just like sincere, but it means without wax. So the Latin word that sounds like sincere means without wax. And it's interesting how they even came, how this came to, to be. And he tells a story. I'm going to read it to you. He says, when the Romans became a world power, they were very strong and rather brutal people. They destroyed a great many of art treasures in Greece in many places. In the cities of Asia Minor, we can still see evidence of that. Many of the art troves of, the Greece, of Greece were broken up. When the Romans reached the point of development in their culture that they appreciated these things, they began to gather them together. 
many of them were broken. When, when, they, when there was a crack in a statue or in a vase, a dishonest dealer would fill it in with wax so that no one could tell that it had been broken. Then he would sell it as a genuine perfect piece. An unsuspecting man would buy it, take it to his villa, and display it in his garden. The next hot day, he would walk out, and lo and behold, the wax would be running out of the crack in that lovely art treasure. Finally, the, the, retro the, the honest dealers began to put on their material the word sin sinerous, sincere, meaning without wax. So in other words, they guaranteed that it was a perfect piece. And so this is how we got the, the, lang the English language word sincere from the Latin without wax. It just means it's genuine. When something is sincere, you're saying they're genuine, they're a genuine person. Um, and that's where it came from. Now, the Greek word is, is very interesting, too. The Greek word here is ela, elikalula. <laughs> I can't pronounce that at all. It means judged by sunlight. So the Greek word for sincere, translated into sincere means judged by sunlight. Some translations, instead of sincere, they have holy. And the idea of here is that... Um, Judged by some, the, what this word was, was along the same lines as the, the wax. When people would buy a pot, pottery, they would hold it up to the sun and they could see if sunlights were shining through. Because if they, they could see the light shining through, then they knew the, the pot had been cracked and wax had been put in. And therefore, it wasn't, it wasn't a sincere pot. Um, but what I find interesting, oh, we'll talk about that more in a minute. So, this is basically what sincere means. Without wax, judged by sunlight. So the basic idea that is Paul is saying is don't be phony. <laughs> be real, be genuine, be sincere. Uh, in our modern vernacular, we would say be authentic. If we were the hippies, we'd say be real, man. You know, so like, this is what sincere is calling for, to just be, a re to be real and, and honest. Don't lie, don't pretend, just be a real person. Now, Paul does also say that he wants us to be blameless. Blameless is this word, apukops. It means without offense, not troubled by a consciousness of sin. Um, and so the idea here is basically that your behavior doesn't cause somebody else to sin. I think of Romans 14. In Romans 14, Paul talks about how we have liberty in Christ to, to pretty much do whatever we want, but we cannot let our li use our liberty in such a way that it causes our brother to stumble. And so this is what, he's, this is what it means to be blameless. When you're blameless, you, uh, you behave in such a way that you don't cause other people to stumble. But it goes beyond just other people and other Christians. Um, I'm going to read you a comment. It says, There are people who are themselves faultless, but who are so hard and harsh and astute that they, in the end, drive people away from Christianity. These are, these are people who are good, but they are so critical of others of others that they repel other people from goodness. 
the Christian, the Christian himself is pure, but his love and his gentleness are such that it attracts others to the Christian way and never repels them from it. So the basic idea is that we would be morally pure, not causing others to stumble. And so this is what it means to be blameless. Many older translations don't have blameless. It says to be without offense. But it means to, to not offend people in, by your lifestyle. It doesn't mean to not offend people because the gospel is offensive. You know, um, we're called to preach the gospel. And when we preach the gospel, some people will be offended. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about having a lifestyle that is not offensive. Um, now, I want to show you that. I can't see that card. There's, um, all right, so let's get that. There's an interesting thing I want to show you about this word, this verse. In the end, in the translation that we've been reading through service today, it says that we will be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, in the translation that Kyle sent out um, via email and in some of your Bibles that have, if you have a different translation, it might say, some tra translations say, until the day of Christ. So the question being, are we to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ or are we to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ? And it's just one little word, but that's a really big difference. Because are we talking about just being ready for Jesus Christ to come back, be blameless for the day of Christ? Or are we to strive for sincerity and blamelessness until he comes back? And so that's what the question, and scholars on both sides of the issue disagree. Like, I could find five scholars on, on either side of the issue. Now, the Greek word is this little word, eris. And it's just a preposition. It means into, unto, for, among. It's a preposition that can indicate the point reached or the purpose result of something. So what all this tells us is this is no help. <laughs> Looking at the definition of what this Greek word, what this preposition does, isn't going to help us. The people that translate there is translational biases when people translate. And so that's why you'll see differences in the text. Um, I, went, I usually use the, the net translation, which is um, they go with for the day of Christ. I like this one better um, because I, I think what it's saying is that when Jesus Christ comes, I am going to be blameless. I am going to be blameless because he has already taken my sin and I get his righteousness. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But if it's until the day of Christ, then I'll, I can't work on blamelessness, but I can work on my sincerity. I can be a sincere person, and every day I can try to be a better, sincere person. And I like it when we use the word sincere instead of holy, because it's very hard in our minds to say, I can be a holy person. It's much easier for us to think I can be a sincere person. I can be an authentic person. So it, in my mind, what I think, I think both of these are true. I think we should be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. And I think we should be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. 
And what makes all the difference, what motivates me, is the day of Christ. The day of Christ is our great motivator. Sometimes, you know, like we have those bracelets. What would Jesus do? Like that's, we have those. So when we're faced in a situation, we should really say, what would Jesus do? And when we think that way and when we do that, then we are getting ready for the day of Christ. So while the, either reading is possible, theologically, they're both true. We are going, when Jesus Christ comes, we are going to be received as a holy, blameless church. And until he comes, we can live like a holy, blameless uh, saint. And that leads us to the last point of the Christian life. Paul says, I pray that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. Oh, I switched out of my notes. Just give me one second, please. All right, so. The amazing thing about this and about the Christian life, Paul wants us to be um, filled. Our, Our sincerity and our blamelessness comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. The way we get holy, the way we get blameless, is because we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Jesus Christ died for all the sins of the world. All the sins of the world are placed on Jesus Christ. And when you believe that is true, his righteousness is given to you. And this is what we, in theology, it's called imputed righteousness. Um, And so every sin Jesus has died for, sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, are you righteous? And the only way you become righteous is by believing that that Jesus did it for you. Um, Paul explained it this way. It's one of my favorite verses. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So this is what imputed righteousness is. This is, what, this is how we start the Christian life, and this is how we live the Christian life, because it's Jesus' righteousness that we have. God put all our sin, everyone's sin, on Jesus Christ. And when you believe it, his righteousness is given to you. And that's how we are blameless for the day of Christ because we have his righteousness. Now, most commentators make a connection between the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So basically what they just say is they just bounce over to Galatians 5 and rattle off the fruits of the Spirit and say that that's the fruit of righteousness. Um, but I'm going to disagree. I can't leave without offering some kind of heresy. Um, I don't think there's a connection to the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, First of all, here the word fruit is singular. Now, there are other translations that have it plural here, and so which makes an even stronger connection. Now, it is the word fruit here and in Galatians is the exact same word. However, the older manuscripts, like, like the one that Nats are using, 
it is only singular. So I don't see that we have to rush off to make a connection to the fruit of the Spirit. This is all still talking about Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Everything we have comes through Jesus Christ, comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, but this is what I think. So I don't think there's a connection. I believe that the fruit of righteousness is love. And that's what this whole prayer was about. Remember, this prayer began that Paul prayed that their love would abound more and more. And so I believe that the fruit of righteousness is love. You know, the Christian life, when you're walking with the Spirit, when you're living the Christian life, it's just the life of Jesus Christ being lived through you. The, the way that the, the Christian life is letting God use you, it's Jesus Christ living through you. And Jesus Christ is all about love. Jesus told his disciples that, that they, the world would know them by their love for one another. And the, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. And in fact, God himself is called, is said, God is love. And love is the greatest motivator. Jesus, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one, one and only son. So to me, and I, I want to develop this thought some more, but I think the fruit of righteousness is love. Is that agape love. And when we do this, when we love this way, when we have this agape love, then we will glorify God. Because the last part of the verse was to, to the glory and praise of God. Now, to glorify God, we hear it all the time. But it's this simple de definition, to bring positive attention to God. When we glorify God, we're bringing positive attention to God. And when we love people with, uh, with an agape love, that is going to bring positive attention to God because the world doesn't know agape love. And when they see you be patient, they see you be kind, they see you let the person in the traffic jam or not flip out at work because they took your last donut or whatever it may be, they see those displays of agape love, they're going to stop and say, well, wait a minute, something's different. Like, why did you do that? I would have ate the three of those donuts. <laughs> you know, um, when we display agape love, people will notice and then give us an opportunity to say that it's, it's all about God and the praise and the glory goes to God. And so the fruit of righteousness is love. That one, we're going to close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity. We ask that your blessing would be on Kyle and all of our traveling today. And we would just uh, thank you for giving us your love. Thank you for showing us your love, for loving us when we were unlovely, and to just be a huge demonstration of love to us. May we um, copy that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.